and welcome to another episode of the Dice Are Screaming. Oh, oh. I fell over. Yeah, with bright. It, ah. was, it was my raucous war cry. Yeah, that's right. You frightened it. <laughs> and I'm Randy. And I am Mike. And we have the Dicemen together tonight for a special podcast with our guest, Pat. Greetings. 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 Yes. Pat Galligan. Did I say it right? Yes, sir. Okay. Pat Galligan's been a good friend of mine and, of course, a contributor to the hobby for a long time here in Battle Creek. And, of course, he grew up in the wild, wild Midwest of Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Dangerously close to the the origin point of D&D itself. Yeah, and we got a good topic lined up for you tonight with our guest host. So, uh, our uh, guest of the hour, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Pat? Well, I, I started gaming back in about 1980. And I've playing with the same group since 1984, so I believe will be 40 years. Holy cow! He's yeah. got us beat. He does. Holy cat! So it, yeah, so uh, yeah, we've had our back and forth and ups and downs, but uh, we've kind of kept our. Uh, we actually have two original characters too. Oh yeah. They both wow. had to be resurrected once, I think. Oh wow! But they were. Oh, two yeah, we, original characters. We should do a little. Uh, Homage to that long-term campaign play and uh, yeah. in on that. And I think they're both 20th level, a druid and a wizard. Yeah, so... Uh, and I figured the spell slingers make it. You know, yeah. Hang was, back. Yeah. Think tactically. It's the guys who run right into the fire that are... <laughs> yeah. Uh, short-lived. Yeah, so it's been a hot one here in uh, the southwest wilds of Michigan. Yeah, I, I southwest was... southwest Michigan. <laughs> I, I was uh, required to uh, dispose of the kimono and wear real people clothes today. Uh, in spite of the heat, I, I consider it a great unfairness. I'd much rather be, much rather be rocking the kimono today. Uh. Yeah, that's true. But nonetheless, uh, Pat's been very gracious to lend us his house. And tonight we have a special one about accessories. So we're going to leave you in suspense for a little bit about that. Just, just a hint. But uh, we're going to take a quick break, uh, pay the bills, and be right back with you with some more with Pat. So stick around. All right, and we're back. So thanks for sticking around as we paid the bills there. And of course, we're talking about accessories tonight. And you might be asking yourself, hey, didn't these knuckleheads cover this a while ago? And you would be right. Oh, oh. absolutely. We did indeed cover it in a loose sense where we, we went over types of accessories and things that you can include in your game to improve it. We made a cursory nod towards the easy materials for homemaking stuff, and we referenced some of the very terrific outlets that offer materials today. But I don't think we did a really in-depth look at specific raw materials and the handcrafting of specific game accessories at home. Yeah, specifically for 25mm, but uh, of course if you do adhere to the 6 and 10 millimeter varieties of miniatures. They are out there. Oh, yeah, well, now there's some blood, sweat, and tears. Mm. Uh, yeah, but uh, the 25 millimeter, and of course we're sitting here surrounded by a variety of medieval-style inns, taverns, and uh, houses, including a magic shop, I think I see over there, as well as a gate, and a church. And I believe a blacksmith is uh, operating over there. One with a privy. Oh, really? Yeah, right there. Lucky fellow. <laughs> there are Jake's handy. Mm. Oh, good man. 
So, um, Pat's constructed all this stuff by hand, and of course it looks marvelous. Uh, if you want to, you can look at our uh, blog at uh, One WordPress at the Dice of Screaming. Mike's, uh, Those will be posted uh, commandant after of we that. get home tonight. Yep. Uh, I believe, are these going to be appearing on the Instagram? I'll see if Sarah's got time. She's busy with the Etsy store. But oh, yes. true. She is very busy. So uh, we're going to turn a little bit over to Pat. So, uh, Pat, you've been gaming for four years. And so when you started using uh, accessories, what really uh, prompted you? Well, we started playing as a paper and pencil gaming group. <laughs> and uh, it was a trip to the first Gen Con that... Uh, not the very first Gen Con, oh, okay. but my first trip to Gen Con, about 1982. Ooh. We uh, saw Grenadier and Ralph Partha and oh. all those good old 25-millimeter sculpts that at the time just looked like they were the ultimate in gaming. And so very shortly, we introduced miniatures onto our tabletop. And along with uh, a paper grid and a grease pencil, we were mapping out our dungeons. Ah. And that worked for several years. And then one day while I decided to uh, run a game of uh, Ravenloft, oh, yeah. the brilliant idea struck me that <laughs> I was going to build it in 3D. Mm -hmm. And I put pencil to paper and all my waking moments, I just was scrawling rough stone paper patterns into the cardboard and cutting out walls and cutting and pasting and uh, by the time it was done it was accessorized with uh, uh, just construction paper banners and little <laughs> paper tables and chairs and accessories and once my players got to play in that environment I knew we were never going to just play paper and pencil again. <laughs> oh, wow. At that and point, a little fear sets in, like, oh, oh, Lord, what have I done to myself? Absolutely. <laughs> and How so, old were you? Oh, golly, let me think. I was probably about 30 years old. Okay. Right. Yeah. I'm dating myself now. Oh, cool. <laughs> well, somebody's got to date us. We won't. You know, almost nobody will. Uh, so I, I have to date myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> product uh. of the 80s and the Stranger Things era myself. Uh, my my significant memories of the 1970s uh, alternate back and forth between small amounts of science fiction, fantasy fiction, D&D, &D, and horrifying clothing. Uh, yeah, <laughs> corduroy. Really, really bad clothing. I, I remember a lot of corduroy and a lot of paisley. I, I remember uh, very, very ugly leisure suits. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember attending a wedding in a leisure suit. Oh, good point. Oh, gosh. That's yeah, if it wasn't for Grandmals, I probably wouldn't know how to dress myself these days. Oh, good old Grandmals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, oh, now we've dated ourselves. Yes. Oh, boy. You know what Grandmals are. <laughs> Everybody in the room chuckles. Uh, and there's not a millennial that has an idea what that just meant. It's like a secret code. Now, uh, <laughs> when I look at these, you have a puppet show here. I think that is the unique thing, is that you, you these uh, made a lot of these buildings for specific games or for specific purposes in a game. Yeah, we, uh, over the years, we've, a lot of these houses we've used for several campaigns, but there were instances, there were buildings like the, the blacksmith shop, I needed a blacksmith shop, the gatekeeper house, I needed the gatekeeper house, even the puppet show. Um, 
we used these props in, in, in very specific game settings, and they had an actual component that you had to contact the person in the puppet booth. Oh, and you okay. had to uh, interact with them while they were trying to talk to the crowd. So you were actually talking to the puppets. Now, these are from the early days of gaming when there wasn't a lot of stuff like this available. I know that TSR published some modules with some punch-out uh, cardboard buildings that you assembled and glued together or taped, mm -hmm. whatever. I, re I remember those well, and I, in fact, I think I still have a... I, I, the funny thing, I never actually punched or used any of those materials. Mm -hmm. I still have them, and I, I used them more... Uh, the adventure for the adventure purposes, but to see how they uh, put together their buildings. And so that was an early template. Now, uh, by way of reference, since we're doing a podcast and people cannot see what's in front of us right just this moment, uh, let me explain that there is a little tableau here that resembles a town square on market day. Uh, there are miniatures involved for the individual merchants and passers-by as well as customers. Uh, there are tiny tables with produce, uh, fabric, uh, and edibles, uh, bread and cheese, for instance, with little wheels of cheese with bits cut out of them and loaves of bread. Uh, and all of this is to scale with the average 25 millimeter uh, size. Remarkably, I do want to ask, is the fake rolls of fabric there? Are those miniature bits of paper? Yes. Just uh, Construction paper, just rolled up and glued to hold their uh, shapes. Looking like bolts of cloth, mm -hmm. uh, which it does create the impression of a proper market square. And then off to the side is the remarkable puppet show, uh, which... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just floored that, you know, you would have need of a puppet show booth and that you were able to make it, which kind of brings us to the next point was, when you make these things, how much time do you put into it? Well, the puppet is probably about four hours, mm -hmm. and uh, there's actually several elements to it. it. It's a box shape, four sides, four walls, that were made out of foam core, cut it out with an exacto knife, glued them together with my Gorilla Glue, mm -hmm. uh, Elmer's-type glue. And then the actual facade is balsa wood that oh, has yeah. been scored and cut and you know, punctured several times with my exacto knife to give it that wormy, weathered look. Yeah, like the, uh, the and, pieces didn't perfectly fit together, but they've slapped it together in medieval fashion yeah. and done the best they could. <laughs> Um, the two paste the resistance pieces mm -hmm. I think I'm really proud of. I made the little puppet show banner with the uh, smiling and the sad actor faces across the top yeah. of the puppet booth. And then the little crown at the bottom that would make it a royal puppet show. And, of course, the two little hand puppets were just something I put together. It is I couldn't do Punch and Judy, so I did Beauty and the Beast. Wow, yeah, that looks really great. <laughs> and he does look beastly. It does look exactly like the beast from Beauty and the Beast. Uh, uncanny. You know, uh, a lot of these, uh, the shingles on the roast and stuff like that, and uh, some of the siding on the wall you said were balsa wood, but the shingles are... Cereal uh, boxes. Yeah, just cereal boxes. Okay, so commonly used material. So this is the big thing I want to point out, is that a lot of the 
pre-made stuff, the stuff you can buy like Dwarven Forge, is rather cost prohibitive for an entry level. I mean, yes, you can get into it for about 100 to 80 bucks, but then, you know, you're kind of limited to what it gives you in that set. This one, you can just uh, create whatever your mind really is set out to or whatever the scenario you have. Yeah, uh, the, the average cost for a house here is under $4. And I, I say the average cost because uh, a sheet of balsa wood might cost you $2. You're going to get five or six houses out of it. Right. Um, the, uh, the, the foam core, about two or three houses. And uh, depending on how well you uh, use the stuff, uh, often I'll, I have savaged and recycled many, many items into many other things. So like the gatehouse, oh, all okay. the railing work was taken off of an old elven house I had. Wow. Ah. Yeah, now my the house of Elrond. Has a nice fieldstone-like building. with uh, That's cut with styrofoam. Yeah, this, the interior... Uh, what has been used here is a foam, uh, an industrial like packing the, uh, housing type foam. It's the insulation foam that they sell at Lowe's or uh, Home Depot, and a, a sheet of that is eight by four foot and um, thickness of less than half an inch. It's it's something that you you'll use every inch of it. Yeah, and oh, absolutely, uh, you can get a hundred uses out of it. I've I've made castles out of it. By the way, a lot of these things, I have sold about 30 houses online on eBay. They go for average. I, I put them on cheap, so they sell for about $30, $40 when I get the bidding done. Yeah. I put them online for $5. Sure. So I've been able to recoup my investment and put it back into the hobby and buy other miniatures or buy other accessories depraise yeah. the cost in time and materials completely so it, i mean it's it, it's become a net zero you you've got all the stuff you want and it's paid for itself great yeah. uh, i wanted to talk about the faux field stone appearance uh, you score the exterior of the foam using a hot tool yes um, there's a lot of different ones that are available and this particular setup I got was just a a hot wire knife from uh, Michael's. It was about good. $5. Oh, okay. Right. Okay, now that was that was a very specific item I wanted to reference. The remarkable uh, painstaking detail in creating what looks like typical split field stone construction uh, and mortar by using a hot wire knife to score the foam in such a way as to create the impression of a great many stones having been used. Uh, and then on others, there's a sort of uh, what we would think of as Tudor, uh, T-E-U-D-O-R, uh, English-style houses uh, that would be kind of pre-Renaissance era. And the stucco exterior has been done over the foam by heavily applying white paint. Yeah, and I, I do several layers. I would take a little black and mix it in with the white and get that little faded grayish black background mm -hmm. and then slowly make it a little bit more, add a little more white to it to give it another layer. Right. And so the last layer will be straight white application and now I've got the brush and I'm just taking dabs of 
brush strokes and going boom, <laughs> boom, 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 randomly. And, and that gives you that final little standout stucco look. Yeah. yeah what I like to do when I uh, do that stuff is I like to take an old sponge, cut it up, and put it in. Uh, oh, that's a good way of doing uh, it, too. Into about an inch square and put it uh, into um, one of those uh, clothespins, the clasp types, and just stick it in the paint, brush it off a little bit, and uh, do that dab. Yeah, I just learned something new. That's awesome. <laughs> See, yeah, and that's it, is that, you know, when you get hobbyists together who create stuff, and of course this is mostly a, almost like a model railroaded hobby level stuff that uh, you have to learn, but uh, whenever you get a hobbyist in this, and this brings me to my next point, is that, you know, this is a hobby within a hobby. First of all, you're playing a game, and you need props and things like that. You can create it once you learn and get comfortable with it. But that's the whole part for a lot of people. They think they look at this and like, wow, I could never do this. Oh, and, and I you know you did a remarkable job. I'm not trying to anyway downplay what you did here, but just saying that a lot of people are intimidated initially by creating their own and look at uh, what's commercially available. And I and I'm not trying to put down anyone's product. You oh, know, no. uh, the the terrain crate and all those places, yeah. Dwarven Forge have wonderful products. That I think are really cool and can really add to a game. But oh yeah, and you use those as well. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, there's no reason to limit yourself as a gamer. I mean, if you have the wherewithal to get those products, they are terrific products, and I totally recommend them. Yeah. But, uh, these are things that can fill in blanks. The ability to create your own, uh, like little additional section or something that maybe they don't have on the market at the moment, or the ability to transform some of what they have already provided and put your personal touch on it. Uh, I, I want to mention some of the individual signs on buildings here, uh, many of which are based on images of classic tarot cards, uh, including the sun and, uh, oh, what was the other one? The tower. The tower, which it has been used as a sign for a mage's bar uh, or a magic shop. Yeah. That magic shop is really cool. Yeah, and I and I don't feel limited to like just the traditional earth tone palette. I, yeah, I, that one's highlighted with blue, which yeah, very very sky baby blue blue to uh, to make it stand out. Obviously, the, the magic user was very proud of his shop and the uh, yeah, spent no, some that, coinage. Uh, green building over there. This is uh, spent some for the good blue woad. This is a good example of. The several, shop. Oh, yeah. uh, several schools of design. I've taken several layers of box, boxy shapes with foam core. The lower level has been cut out. It's just four walls. The top box is a rectangular shaped box, and it has little triangles size for roofing. Mm-hmm. I did a uh, triangular roof on the one end of it, and of course I have a three-story fireplace for the blacksmith yeah so yeah and you got like a, a porch there where you can put all the working tools and where he works at the porch yeah that see that's really creative and that really sets apart from a lot of the things that where they have a budget you know if you make something too elaborate or too big it suddenly gets you know like cost prohibitive to produce on mass yeah so dwarven forge would have difficulty putting something like this out at a price that people could afford whereas by handcrafting this you know is just gorgeous and convincing uh it, it is a perfect atmosphere piece there uh, in 25 millimeter scale 
Yeah, that's beautiful. And I, I tell you, it's a lot of fun to to draw these up and to uh, to execute them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the design. So there. your process begins with basically the idea and then sketching out the design first on paper. Yeah, and I and I try to be you know uh, judicious about how I go about doing it. Um, for for listeners, I've just grabbed another house set. It's actually three buildings in one, but I finished each side in a different style. So oh, I yeah. can change neighborhoods just by the picking up and turning it around. Oh wow! Completely reversible, so to speak. Yeah, so like this a, looks a like a Hollywood set. Yeah. Where if they they've got uh, oh this is 1800s West and this other side is 1920s, and we can just turn them opposite yeah. side. Boom. Yeah, and of going. course this will make some more context when you see the pictures, which of course yeah. is our trick to get you to look at it. We, we understand um, the limitations of uh, of voice. Yeah. We're we're going back to old Dave's radio here. We're describing <laughs> yeah, the crash is, uh... of Hindenburg, all the humanity. <laughs> oh, the humanity. But uh, I want to also trust us. There's a dirigible that is now plunging into the backyard. <laughs> yeah, I think we got our next Call of Cthulhu set uh, ready to make now. I. Would also like to take a moment out to talk about the dungeon-esque tile base, uh, very much in the spirit of the Dwarven Forge-style uh, dungeon flooring. Now this, unlike the balsa wood and foam core, this has been crafted from Sculpti. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, that would probably be the most expensive part of the entire process. Which... Yeah, I think a, a brick, a box of it, Cost on average about ten dollars at yeah. Michaels. Yeah, so you're still not breaking the bank here. I mean, you yeah. you walk but out of there with twenty bucks worth of this, and that's that's just those four pieces are two bricks. So you know, a word to the wise: if you think you're going to replace your dwarven forge with making your own sculpty pieces, uh, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> now you've done some beautiful work, very similar to what. Well, honestly, it's exactly what some of the professional companies do, you've created the impression of liquid using a clear epoxy, mm-hmm. uh, which convincingly, if you painted underneath it with a little bit of green and yellow, uh, looks like algae or slime or, you know, like a, a, a cave floor that has mm-hmm. liquids creeping down out of the ground and flowing onto the rock. Uh, so it is... Rather than a archetypal, oh, let's see, a carefully hand-built, paved dungeon look, uh, this looks more like a highly untrustworthy cave floor with stalactites and stalagmites uh, just waiting. And there's no telling what's lurking in that water. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would be... I would be thinking about getting some shots if I accidentally fell in that. Yeah, which uh, kind of brings me to the transition point is that while we're looking at the village stuff, which is fine for exploring a city or a small town or just seeing where players are at a certain moment. Like, for instance, it's obvious here that you have some type of marketplace or fair. Now we kind of transition to the dungeon pieces. And, uh, of course, uh, right across from that, Mike's now admiring the uh, homage to the player's handbook with the uh, flaming idol or plain wreathed idol. Yeah. With the burning brazier right in its lap. Uh. My first handbook had that iconic cover, and 
golly, I I still have the book and yeah, you even got gems for his eyes. He's <clears throat> mm-hmm. oh, like yeah, got gem right. googly eyes going on. Which uh, all it needs is a rogue crawling up crawling and crawling off yeah. with a crowbar. <laughs> yeah, you see I, the size of those gems. I very specifically designed that to uh, homage the original handbook cover, and uh-huh. that was a that was a fun night. And I actually had two of my players go, hey. I have always wanted to adventure in that setting. Yeah. <laughs> so bravo. So I was very proud that they caught the homage. Uh, so you're a fellow handwriter of campaign <clears throat> material. Uh, you know, when you uh, DM, do you uh, handwrite material and then intermingle modules? We or? we have played uh, uh, written modules, and we've written several adventures of our own. The campaign world we have is more a, a handcrafted world. We've introduced several elements. I didn't bring them down here tonight to show, but we actually introduced several years ago flying airships. We call them dragon ships. Uh-huh. And this facilitates uh, our players the ability to go to very far exotic places and travel quickly. Uh-huh. So what would have been months and months traveling, they can do it in about a week. Of travel time, right? We'll still roll for encounters, and we we deal with weather, weather, and other elements. <laughs> but the basic travel is very fast. It also nice. gives you certain limitations because they are working with a crew that's not necessarily has the same objective as them. Mm-hmm. They have to cooperate, <laughs> and because there are limitations that the dragon ships can perform, they can't go against the wind. They're still wind powered. Um, there are very many disadvantages to traveling by the air. Still, it's probably more ideal because your adventurers have a little uh, five-by-five room that's their own. At the end of the day, they can lay down in a bed and call it their own. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so it's the Cadillac of uh, medieval travel. Right, it's a transition point from um, the teleport spell where, bam, you're there. and you know the The fun for that has been... We have created uh, new environments to play on, and we are playing in an adventure right now where, for the first time, the kingdom of Ral has been accused of raiding other countries with their dragon ships. And in the course of the adventure, they're going out and discovering there are now pirates operating with similar technologies. Uh And so there's a storm giant that's involved that has created this ship for the pirates and is plundering and... Ah. Um, it is it, great adventure. It's a, it's a hand, uh, you know. It's a right. It's a homespun adventure. It's a lot like the terrain you created here. It's part of your own imagination being brung out, and that's the whole point I wanted to also mention. Is like when you create these highly detailed tiles. What I found with using like dwarven boards and some of my own stuff is sometimes players get lost in the detail. Now, how do you handle that? Well, like they said, well, it looks like there's a little. Uh, there, there is that that uh, danger of going down a rabbit hole, mm-hmm. and of course you've got to let them go too, right? They're, right? To a certain extent, yeah. So it sometimes has created uh, wonderful opportunities for storytelling, but yeah, there is the danger that sometimes you rely too heavily on a prop. So the the, I guess the best way to guard against that is how important is it to the story? Is it necessary? Is it uh, going to add something of value to the adventure? If you can check those boxes, it's worth doing. 
So oh. for the market setting or for some of these buildings, when the story absolutely called for it, we made it. And uh, just uh, like you would in any adventure, whether you were using Dwarven Forge, don't let them right. you know, lose the forest through the trees. Keep them focused on the adventure with, uh, with NPCs, you know, with uh, a good NPC just the, is worth yeah, its weight in gold. Absolutely, and so you can steer them through that. And once or twice, I think I, I have generally, uh, when they really went down a rabbit hole, say, guys, okay, it's just an outhouse. <laughs> <laughs> it is not a mimic. You know, you're not. Your lives are not in danger. Mimics, they're everywhere. Yeah, it was uh, <laughs> with the with a village setting or city setting like you have over here. It's a little easier to kind of see where the players are, what, uh, gauge what the timing is from place to place. But nonetheless, uh, especially if you're running a pursuit, like, you know, a thief steals something and now you got to track him down or you're tracking down a villain with his uh, minions as they're trying to flee from you or escape the clutches of the law. This can help, but uh, the more practical use is, of course, always going to be the dungeon tiles and mm -hmm. the dungeon environment. And... Uh, when people use that, uh, sometimes when we talk about getting lost or in the rabbit, down the rabbit hole or lost out in the weeds, what are one of the ways that you uh, find that using dungeon terrain versus like just drawing on a map helps bring out for your game? Well, uh, that's not an easily answered question. I, I, oh, you I know, it's like kind of a multi-layered one. I kind of wanted to yeah, hit you with this one right at the last part here. Um, again... You could, you could go miles to develop a, a terrain culture that you do every tree, every hill, every bush, every you know everything. Um, generally, we try to limit that to is it is it important to the storytelling? Is it advancing the the player's perception of what their objective is and how do they go about solving that problem? Um, in an environment like the houses or in the environment of a dungeon or something, I will usually limit their interactions to, uh, to a script okay. and, try to, and try to keep it in the, that context. And it, in a rare occasion when they really have to go into an environment and interact, I might say, okay, we have several houses for the town. Um, but, you know, after you've talked to several villagers, you've found that the Black Hand is where you have to go. That's where Blackie is hanging out. This, this rogue has the information you need. And now we'll pull out uh, Dwarven Forge. We'll do an inn. Right. And that has an actual setup of chairs, a barkeep, several patrons. And you can discreetly go around and find out, okay, which one of these characters is Blackie. And then the you know they, to take it from there. I'm looking for a one-eyed half orc down at the Hooded Man Inn. Oh. Yeah, and you'll find him too. Yeah, and see there you go. That's the then the last thing I want to kind of touch on. It, unless Mike, you got a question? I can. No, no, right, go right ahead. Uh, this is something I run in with uh, when I set up like with Dwarven Forge or a dungeon or a particular encounter key. I have what I call the fog of war, where I have to cover up certain things, and of course, you know. It's pretty obvious after like a couple interactions or uh, turns of a corner or explorations of rooms where the next area to explore is, you know, because there's more off to the left side of the table or there's much more ahead. So 
we got to be careful. How do you handle that? Um, some of these pieces were specifically d- designed for that. We would, if we were transitioning from a cave setting to like going into an underwater lake, mm-hmm. and we had to travel, and that was a problem to be solved. Okay, how do you cross this lake? <laughs> okay, right. so we have to introduce the element of water. So we might have several pieces that just have, well, you're starting to see the walls where, you know, have a trickle of water. There's some standing water on the ground and there's this and that. And and give those players a clue that, okay, what, there's water. There's something new in the environment. Right. And of course, Dorb Forge has like water pieces and you use that. Um, I actually created a piece. I didn't bring it down, unfortunately, but with the help of podcasting, it's not really necessary. It was a transitional piece that both had a poisonous cone shape that was filling the atmosphere with gas, uh-huh. wow. and also the entrance to the actual water that they had to traverse. So that little setup when they got there, it's a hot house. It's hot. It's got the this weird vapor, and they can actually vaguely sense it that okay this environment is really weird something going on that there's a time you know there's a a time consideration to this dilemma that they have to solve okay um as far as like steering them in a dungeon you know there's always that just move the stuff stuff aside and just Start building another cave or alcove. Right. That's what I find. It does take a little bit of extra time, but I find it worth it as I call it what I, what I like to call is the floating point. Like just there's just one area that you're going to see, and there may be multiple corridors or doors or areas branching off from that. But as you move, those other ones disappear, and the new ones move in. Yeah. I, I have taken in recent times, because this was not a problem that I always had, but over the years, I have built up a quota of Dwarven Forge pieces where I now can actually fill a table t- surface with a dungeon layout. Mm-hmm. And so rather than lay it all out at once, I'll do a main room or two. But then I cover things up. And yeah. so I just reveal it. So a lot of times, there are several pieces under that blanket, but they haven't yet put into place. Yeah, <laughs> they're just kind of lumped up under that. You you see it under the uh, the tablecloth, but you're not sure what it is. And when you say, "Well, we're going to go there," okay, well now I'm going to actually put them together and fit that room. Together. Right, and see that keeps them guessing, and it keeps the element yeah. of surprise and suspense. Like, well, you never know what's under there. Yeah, if you have things staged in, adva- in advance as a DM working with miniatures, you know you can phase in a new room fairly quickly. If you set them up in advance, you have containers that are ideally sized uh, and you know, you're know you not uh, under a heavy time constraint. If you, if you can invest a goodly measure of time for your game, it's not that big of a disruption to change the setting. Uh, kind of like scene break in a play where, it, okay, the set crew goes to work and whew, all of a sudden, we're from the center of town into the mayor's office, you know. Absolutely. Very absolutely. easy. Transition is not that tough if you plan it in advance and have your packages labeled. It should not be too terrifying. So one thing I'd like to, as we're starting to work our way down, and of course testing our listeners' patience, <laughs> is uh, 
the fact that this is a hobby within a hobby and it's easy to get into uh, we made it uh, kind of clear that there's a there's a cost element to it but it's not as steep as other ways and of course you know as you learn and do and work with your hands is a constant creation process and that's the key here is that you never get better unless you do it and sometimes you just have to jump in so starting with a small building uh, my first one was taking a piece of styrofoam and uh, using a little pieces of plastic to make the bricks and it was a and I just made a brick house uh, block house and the first one was a wooden door and you know painted it up gray and did the dry brushing and all of the details in the stone and then just put the doors on and I was like, here's a blockhouse. Now I don't know what it was used for, but uh, I found, you know, that was just a, where I started my entry point in crafting stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, I uh, even got involved in making a three-stage dungeon that was kind of an homage to uh, White Plume Mountain, but it grew into something completely different. <laughs> Classic. Where you could actually pull out the side of the mountain and then you would see three levels of dungeon with oh, different cool. traps and stuff like that. But unfortunately, a cat and many moves uh, ruined that one. Oh. Well, and my uh, crafting story, uh, I don't normally craft a great many things. I didn't think of myself as a person capable of it. Uh, it's not that I hadn't painted miniatures and enjoyed the process, but I had not crafted a lot of things until I had a niece and a nephew, which you discover your ability to be creative uh, when you're dealing with kids, you know, I, I didn't think of myself as as being able to do crafty type stuff And I was using clay to make tiny animals for them. Yeah, uh, and the next day my brother called me and said You're gonna have to come over You're gonna have to show me how to make a seahorse Because my daughter asked me to make a seahorse and her daddy did not know how to do it And she looked at me and went but uncle Mike knows how and that's not allowed you you have to come over and show me how you made that seahorse because I can't look my daughter in the eye and tell her that daddy doesn't know how to do this for you. So <laughs> my, my tiny animal crafting skills, uh, I suddenly thought of myself, wow, you know, you, you actually can do this. And I, I do want to make that my end point uh, encouragement to people. There is a lot of satisfaction to be gained from working with raw materials that are low impact, low cost, uh, and incredibly flexible in the ways in which they can be used. So go for it. Do not be intimidated. You almost certainly will fail. Something will go wrong. Something won't look perfect. But keep trying. Give it a shot. And as many failures as there are, there is also happy accidents and discoveries. Yeah. So always keep your mind open to evolving your game from just the theater of the mind to sometimes a representation. And of course, mix and match it to your expectations and your ability to host games, of course. We didn't cover much on transportation, but uh, oh, these previously are... we talked to Pat about how transporting, and he said that these made the trip of many, many miles. Many, many miles. Um, they have been, uh, in, I think these buildings have been in service for about three, four years, oh. with the exception of the gatehouse. Oh, wow. And that was built about two, three weeks ago. <laughs> Oh, excellent. As I, as I told my group the night we played, I said, that once again, Dungeons & Dragons has forced me to be more creative than I truly am. And I think that's a great place to end it right there. Yeah, that, uh, you know, that the hobby has brought out the best in your creativity. Good on you. Well, thank you. All right, and thank you, Pat, for joining us for tonight. It's been my pleasure. I love listening to your broadcast, and I, I look forward to hearing this one. All right.
Don't, well, don't let me be too foolish on it. Edit well. <laughs> oh, well, we don't edit. We just do it raw. <laughs> and are. on that note, uh, we're going to end it up here and uh, tie it together with a little bit of string called If You Like What You Hear. And, you, of course, you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can get a hold of us on our Facebook page, The Dice of Screaming. Uh, like us there. And, of course, uh, we're doing uh, Meme Week here. <laughs> like in, in the spirit of Shark Week, Shark Week it's Meme Week. So. Yes, Meme Week over at Facebook, uh, at the Dice of Screaming Facebook page. Yes, and we'll get a hold of that. And, of course, leave your own. And uh, as long as they're not too bad, we'll uh, leave them up. Um, but also, you can get a hold of us on Twitter, me at Death Hand Gaming. And myself at Magi Box when I periodically float in and haunt the place. Ooh, Sneaking spooky. up. Spooky. And with that, we'll leave you with May, May the, the Dice, dice always, always Roll in Your Favor. favor. We're out. See ya. Ooh.